Thank you, Dorian. Thank all of you for your service um, overseas. <clears throat> and thank you, church, for your generosity. It's your generosity that is funding those missions efforts. So praise God. I'm Ryan, one of the pastors, it's great to get to open the word with you this morning. Um, we're continuing through our series in 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 4 this morning. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up and follow along. Uh, it'll also be <clears throat> up here on the the screen. <clears throat> I apologize. Hopefully I will make it through most of this without coughing too much, um, but please pray for me. Uh, if you are physically able to stand, would you mind standing to honor the reading of God's word? First Corinthians 4 verses uh, 1 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes this, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, which you promise goes forth and never returns void. We thank you for the power of your spirit at work in our hearts, stirring our affections to know you, to love you, to seek after you. Lord, we thank you for the power of the gospel to transform hearts and change lives, to set us free and propel us out as your ambassadors. And Lord, I thank you that we get to open this text this morning and see and experience all of those things. 
And so I pray this morning, would you meet us, Father? Would you be magnified? Would you be glorified? Would Jesus be lifted high? Would you give us faith in the places where we struggle to trust you and to live in obedience? Would you meet us in our places of desperation and need? Lord, would you work uh, in spite of my limitations? And would you be would you be glorified, Father? We love you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> uh, well, it's quite a text, quite an ending there, right? I'm looking forward to getting into all of this. Um, but while hunting for some illustrations this week, I came across a, uh, a story that will tickle art enthusiasts and bargain shoppers alike. This was uh, a story that ran on NPR last month, and uh, I've, I've edited it for dramatic effect. <clears throat> uh, in 2017, while browsing a New Hampshire thrift shop for old frames to restore, a local woman who chose to remain anonymous bought a white frame with an old painting inside of it for $4. She had no idea that the painting was actually a rare work by renowned American artist N.C. Wyeth. Then, this past May, while cleaning out her closet, she came across the painting. Thinking that it may have some value, she posted images of it on a Facebook page dedicated to Wyeth. N.C. Wyeth was one of the preeminent illustrators of the early, early 20th century. Uh, among his best known book illustrations are the vib vibrant images he made for uh, Robert Stevenson's 1911 novel, Treasure Island. It started off, this uh, writes Laura Lewis, the uh, curator who, is, who exhibits the Wyeth family um, as part of her work at the Wyeth Study Center at uh, Fainsworth Museum in Maine. It started off with this. Is this real? What struck her about the photos on Facebook was the label on the image on the back of the painting. N.C. Wyeth painted commonly on a brand of panel called Renaissance Panel, made by the Weber Company, says Lewis. Another smaller label on the back identified it as an N.C. Wyeth, and from the book, Ramona. So after consulting with a curator at, at another museum and an expert in N.C. Wyeth, Lewis determined the work was indeed an original Wyeth. The $4 thrift store purchase it turned out to be an original N.C. Wyeth was sold at auction for $191,000. Laura Lewis said, this is everyone's dream. And she hopes that the, the buyer of the Ramona painting will make it available to the general public. There's nothing like seeing an original painting. So if, you're, if you are a, a thrifter, if you go to Habitat, if you go to Goodwill, I know that you're your stomach is just filled with butterflies right now at the prospect, the hope. This is the, the, the Powerball of uh, thrift shoppers. But isn't it astounding <clears throat> how knowing the, the identity of an artist, their life, their collection, their credibility, can so rapidly change the valuation of a single work. To go from being ignored in the dustbins of a thrift shop, sitting on the floor in a closet, to now being sought out at auction 
and sought by museums. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul paints a picture of the Christian life that is extraordinarily valuable, but that similarly was undervalued by his original hearers. You know, much of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is devoted to correcting errors within the church. There were all kinds of errors in, in the Corinthians' theology and their ethics and their identity that was leading to problems within the congregation, right? And chief among those errors was their view of leadership. They had a faulty view of uh, the authority of leaders. They had a faulty view of the function of leaders. They had a faulty view of the qualification of leaders. And so what Paul has been doing in this letter so far is addressing how their misunderstandings of the gospel and the influence of pagan society on their, on their thinking has shaped their wrong view of leadership. And so he's been systematically working through these various aspects over the last three chapters. And now here in chapter 4, Paul gives one last salvo at this, and it's a doozy. But this time, Paul presses into ways that the gospel shapes our identity as Christians, leaders and laymen alike. And Paul does it by painting a picture. In this picture, he depicts two identities that are vital, not only for the health of leaders, but for the health of all Christians. So we see here, we're going to look at two essential identities that Christ's followers are servants and stewards. Servants and stewards. So we look first at servants. Paul begins this section. He says, <coughs> this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ. You know, the social reality of servants was familiar in the ancient Near East, and its imagery is used throughout the New Testament. There are all kinds of types. There's a variety of types of servants in that day. So there were bond servants. These were individuals who sold themselves in service to a household in order to repay a debt, you know, in a society that didn't have bankruptcy laws or courts. This was the way that they settled debts. And so there were bond servants. There were free servants or freemen. These were servants who had perhaps repaid that debt, but because of their, their situation, their affection for that household, wherever they wanted to continue in service there. And they may be, a, you know, attendants or messengers or something like that. And then there were hired workers. These were like the, the day laborers that go out into the field. And Paul begins many of his letters by introducing himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Others do the same. James, Peter, Jude in their letters. John does as well, kind of more indirectly in the opening of Revelation. There's this, re this robust theology of followers of Christ living as servants to him. And of course we see this in Jesus' teachings. Jesus uses imagery of servants for many of his parables. Probably many come to mind. The parable of the talents. The parable of the unforgiving servant. But Jesus is also quite overt in his teachings. You recall when he's preparing his apostles for the persecution that they're going to experience as he's, as he's sending them out. He's warning them of this adversity. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. 
It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? And then there's the infamous point where the disciples are bickering about getting seats of honor, right? James and John had made an unwise request. The other ten didn't like that so much. And what does Jesus tell them? How does he correct them? You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus was clear that the path of following him was not one of self-exaltation or elevation. It was a path of humility. And apparently, this was something that the Corinthians needed to be reminded of. Because evidently, they had come to think quite highly of themselves. Their philosophy, their education, maybe their public speaking gifts, or their alignment with insightful or influential leaders had caused their heads to, to swell up roughly to the size of a Macy's Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Day parade, inflatable, Right? And in thinking about this, I couldn't help but go back to, this is quite dated, but you may recall, if you haven't seen it or not, go back and look up the 1997 Barney incident. The uh, infamous and untimely deflation of Barney as he was impaled on a streetlight. <clears throat> well, Paul decided to quickly let some hot air out of the Corinthians in a similarly brutal, ironic, and hilarious fashion with a barrage of absolutely savage sarcasm in this text. So parents of teenagers, I don't know, maybe skip this chapter <clears throat> if you want to avoid some sarcasm. If we were to summarize what Paul's saying here in verses 8 to 13, it might go something like this. You think yourself to be kings. Spiritually speaking, you are you're so wise and strong and respectable. You have influence and status and abundance, and everyone reveres you as leaders. Isn't that so great for you? You know, if Paul was a southerner, he'd throw in a, a bless your heart there at the end, right? I wish that while you're up there in the royal seating at the Colosseum, that you would spare an invitation because, you know, our seats aren't quite as good. I guess in one way we're really up close to the action. In fact, we're so close we can see the plaque on the lion's teeth. You see, it turns out that we're actually the entertainment. We're more like the ones getting fed to the lions, the spectacle of the world. Our experience in following Jesus so far is that we are viewed as weak and despised. We labor with our hands doing undignified work. We barely have enough. We're kicked down, we're mocked, we are rejected, we are spit on, we are beaten. And you, Corinthians, from your high spiritual state, have looked down on us. You've added on to the ridicule because we do not speak like the orators and philosophize like the sophists of the day. You have despised us. And you have treated us like garbage like the scum scraped off the bottom of your shoe. Indeed, we have had quite a different experience in this journey of serving Christ. 
His point in all of that is simply to say this. You have been ashamed of me as your lowly, unsophisticated, unimpressive apostle. But what you ought to be ashamed of is your pride. The life of following Jesus is not a life of exaltation. It's not a life of praise or adoration from this world. It is a life of humble service. Church, do you know the remarkable calling which you have received? You know, Paul, in using this word servant, he could have chosen from a variety of, of words. One in, one in particular, a word that he uses frequently, shows up much more commonly in the New Testament, doulos, but instead here he uses a less common, at least a less frequently used word in the scriptures. It appears only 20 times. Most of the times that it shows up, it references a guard or an officer. A couple of times it means assistant or attendant. Three times the word is used to mean servant. Here, and twice else, both by Jesus. The first comes in John 18 when Jesus stands before Pilate, giving defense of his life before execution. Pilate's questioning him about his kingdom. Are you the king, right? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over from the Jews but my kingdom is not of this world. He is a king of a very different kingdom, and his servants live very differently. The second comes in Acts 26, and it's actually from Paul sharing about his conversion before King Agrippa, also giving a defense of his life and ministry. You remember, we, we see Paul's conversion earlier in Acts, but here in this testimony, he shares additional details. And he says this, that when Jesus appeared to him, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, which we hear that earlier in Acts. He responds, then I asked, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus appeared to Paul and said, I have appointed you as a servant. And he took Paul from the bondage of murderous legalism and loosed him into a life of freedom and grace. He took Paul from darkness and death and brought him into life and light of God. And with this, he gave him a new identity and a new purpose to be his servant and his witness. And he did this with Paul, and he did this with you.
we all, like Paul, were blinded to our bondage to sin, whether it be self-righteousness or licentiousness. But God shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And with the blinding light of his glory and goodness, he not only revealed our sin against him, but called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Through his death and resurrection, Christ set us free from the bondage of sin and the power of Satan. With his blood, he redeemed us and forgave us and sanctified us who trust in him. And he has likewise called us as his servants for the same purpose in the lives of others. And so now we serve him, not just as servants, but as servants of Christ. The Christ who humbled himself, who washed the feet of his disciples, who embraced the leper, the unclean, the wayward, and the lost, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, who stooped to the lowliest, costliest, most painful form of obedience, his own death on a cross. We are servants of him. Athanasius was the fourth century church father who served as the bishop of Alexandria on and off for about 45 years. But because of his staunch defense of orthodox theology about the deity of Christ, he faced resistance, he faced hardship. He was exiled five times. For 17 years, he lived in exile as bishop of Alexandria. And yet he was so steadfast and so faithful and so sincere in his service to Christ and love for God's people that his flock was ever loyal to him. In fact, John Piper in his biography of Athanasius recounts some of this. He writes, from the, the people of Alexandria's standpoint, none of the foreign appointments to the office of bishop that filled in in his stead in Alexandria for 45 years was valid, but one, Athanasius. This devotion was owing to the kind of man Athanasius was. And Gregory of Nazianzus, another church father, remembered him like this. Let one praise him in his fastings and prayers, another his unweariedness and zeal for vigils and psalmody, another his patronage of the needy, another his dauntlessness toward the powerful or his condescension to the lowly. He was to the unfortunate their consolation, the hoary-headed their staff, youths their instructor, the poor their resource, the wealthy their steward, even the widows will praise their protector, even the orphans their father, even the poor their benefactor, strangers their entertainer, brethren the man of brotherly love, the sick their physician. And one of the things that makes this kind of praise from a contemporary so amazing is that Athanasius did all of this without a single miracle. He's considered a saint, but had no miracles, right? Archibald Robertson, who has edited a lot of his works, goes on with this praise of Athanasius. He said this, In the whole of our minute knowledge of his life, there is a total lack of self-interest. The glory of God and the welfare of the church absorbed him fully at all times. 
the emperors recognized him as a political force of the first order, but on no occasion does he yield to the temptation of using the arm of the flesh. Almost unconscious of his own power, his humility is the more real for never being conspicuously paraded. Courage, self-sacrifice, steadiness of purpose, versatility and resourcefulness, width and ready sympathy were all harmonized by deep reverence and the discipline of a single-minded love of Christ. It was such fidelity to Christ, such a, a singular vision that gave him the courage to say when all the world was following the Arian heresy, to say, if the world is against Christ, then I am against the world. Do we share such a single-minded love and devotion to our Lord? Following Christ means being a servant of the true king. Following him wherever he leads, lowering ourselves to serve however he calls. The second identity that we'll touch on very briefly is that we are called to be stewards. This Identity follows right after Paul's opening verse in the section. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In the ancient Near East, uh, stewards functioned as managers of the house, right? They were often servants, but they had a unique set of responsibilities as well. They were responsible for the care and the provisions of the home, typically in larger or wealthier households. And those duties could include making purchases, sourcing and trading goods, supervising the staff of the household, even overseeing and managing the master's finances. Stewards were entrusted with a great deal. And as such, they needed to be dependable, hardworking, disciplined, capable, but most importantly, they needed to be faithful. If you're going to entrust these immensely important responsibilities to someone, it needed to be someone that was trustworthy. And therefore, a good steward provided, proved his dependability with demonstrated faithfulness over time. And here, Paul outlines that we are stewards as well, but stewards of something very different. We are stewards of the mysteries of God, by which he means the unfolding plan of redemption and restoration and renewal through Jesus Christ. How many waited and prayed and anticipated and hoped and longed for the day when God would send a Savior, a Redeemer, who would rescue them? How many patriarchs, how many prophets, how many normal Israelite men and women prayed to God and looked for the day when the Messiah would come? How many Simeons were there, righteous men, devout, awaiting the consolation of Israel. How many Annas were there? A widow of 84 years who did not depart the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying night and day, waiting for the redemption of Israel. How many afflicted with illness, like the woman with the issue of blood, who waited and prayed and yearned for healing from God? How many people around the world, throughout human history, like the Magi, have looked to the heavens for a sign from God. 
how many are looking today? And while explaining his teachings, Jesus said, blessed are your eyes, for they see. And blessed are your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people have longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What did their eyes see? They saw the blind see and the deaf hear. They heard the mute speak and the outcast weep with joy. They saw the lame walk and the leper cleansed. They heard the screams of demons cast out and the rejoicing of the oppressed set free. They saw the dead raised to life and not just physically. They saw the hearts and minds and lives of people be radically changed. They saw repentance and restoration and renewal, but that is not all that they saw. They saw betrayal and injustice. They heard the shouts of the crowd to crucify their Savior. They saw whips and thorns and robes of mockery. They heard cries of anguish and saw nails pierce skin and bone. They heard quotes from Scripture as they saw blood pour down. They heard scoffing and jeering and insults from the crowd while they saw him show kindness to others. They heard his final cry and they saw their Savior die. But that is not all they saw. They saw the stone rolled away and the grave clothes left behind. They heard an angel declare, He is not here, for he has risen. They saw him risen. They touched his wounds. They watched him eat. They heard his teachings. They saw him appear over and over and over again. And they heard his commission, Go therefore and make disciples for I am with you always. Blessed indeed are their eyes and their ears, for they saw and they heard the mysteries of God, the good news of Jesus Christ. They were entrusted with the greatest of all responsibilities to steward this message. And because the apostles were faithful, that message was passed down to the next generation and the next and the next, for 20 centuries, for over 60 generations, the message has been stewarded. And it's because of the power of God working through the faithfulness of those men and women that you and I sit here today hearing that gospel 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. Like all stewardships, it's eventually passed to a successor. And today, it is we who are entrusted with the gospel. What does it look like for you to live as one entrusted with the gospel? Do you see yourself as a steward? Do you see Jesus as your greatest treasure? Do you view sharing him as the most important purpose in your life? Do you yearn and labor to be found faithful? The stewardship of the gospel can so shape our hearts and our minds that along with Paul and the other apostles, we can live with clarity of conviction that is unimpeded by pride or fear. The 19th century hymn composer, Fanny Crosby, uh, as a baby was blinded by treatment for an eye infection. But instead of becoming bitter, she grew up praising God through writing and composing hymns, over 9,000 of them. And she wrote this one, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. 
Tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Fasting alone in the desert, tell of the days that are past, how for our sins he was tempted, yet was triumphant at last. Tell of the years of his labor, tell of the sorrow he bore. He was despised and afflicted, homeless, rejected, and poor. Tell of the cross where they nailed him, writhing in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they laid him. Tell how he liveth again. Love in that story so tender, clearer than ever I see. Stay, let me weep while you whisper. Love paid the ransom for me. Stay, let me weep while you whisper. Love paid the ransom for me. There is a world desperately waiting for us to tell the story of Jesus. We are the stewards of that treasure. And may we be found faithful that at the end of our days, we hear the commendation from God, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. We turn now to the table.